three horrific stories, three horrific killers, a murderous gifted student, a blood-crazed split personality, and a summer camp butcher. Also, Marianne Simpson brings us an untold tale from one of America's most notorious madmen. This week, it's a surplus of sinful slaughter and stunning psychoses, surging through another scintillating, sinister episode as a scary home companion proudly hosts our first-ever savage and sadistic serial slasher spectacular. Drinking whiskey in the kitchen and telling scary stories around the fire. Music and mayhem, fearful fiction and furious fact, tall tales and terrible truths. This is A Scary Home Companion. Emily Mason is maybe the most fascinating mass murderer that you've never heard of. Why her story hasn't been turned into a movie perplexes me. It bamboozles me. I don't know. Maybe it. Maybe no one would believe it. That so much evil could come from someone so small. Emily Mason started off as one of those super babies and quickly grew into a gifted child. Beyond gifted, really. Um, her ability to to soak up knowledge and retain everything that she saw and heard was light years ahead of what we would normally consider as gifted or advanced. Emily taught herself to read before she had started daycare. Her mother ended up quitting her career in the law to stay home and teach her baby. But within a few months, she openly admitted that she could not keep up with Emily. So Emily's mom and dad looked around. They found the most advanced, the most exclusive school that they could find for her. And at first they couldn't afford it, so they mortgaged their house to pay for it. But by hook or by crook, they got her into that school. They gave her a battery of tests initially when she showed up. These tests placed her IQ as being so high that they thought there had to have been an error in the testing process. So they recalibrated, and the next week they tested her again. She scored much lower this time. She still scored well, very well. She was right in the middle of the range for, for gifted children, but her score had dropped a lot. They gave her a few more tests, um, really anything that the soft sciences could throw at her, personality and psyche valves, profiles... They were trying to figure out the limits of this girl's intelligence. It didn't take long before the doctors and the teachers started to whisper amongst themselves, and they developed a theory of their own. It was never put on paper, but the people that knew Emily Mason started to think that she was so advanced that she could score whatever she chose to on any psychological or intelligence test that they gave her. She was smart enough to hide how truly smart she was, right? On top of that, she was finally becoming socialized. She was mingling with other gifted kids, as well as her teachers, janitors, just 
people outside of her family. And as she did this, she was slowly teaching herself to be special, but not too special. She didn't want to stand out. She wanted to fit in. Which, pardon me, I misspeak. That isn't exactly right. Emily didn't want to fit in. Emily wanted to blend in. Because she didn't care about friends. She didn't care about the other kids or the teachers or the janitors or anyone else. She cared about camouflage. She was out in the wild, so to speak, learning how to act like other kids. Emily got straight A's. Perfect attendance, no behavior problems. She never even had any tardies. She was a model student who at the same time never really seemed to stand out in any particular way. At this point, Emily, she's about nine years old. And it was graduation day. Since this was a K through five elementary school, there wasn't really a graduation, but every year during the last week before summer break, the school always had a graduation ceremony for any student that was stepping up to the next grade. A lot of these kids were already learning at high school level, so I guess it kind of made sense. So it's graduation day. Everyone is in the main hall. It's a pretty small school, only 80 or 90 kids total throughout all the grades. And there was that number again, another 80 or 90, and parents and staff, what have you. At some point, early in the ceremony, Emily excused herself. She slipped away. She went to her locker, and she took out a few things that she had put aside, including a bundle of zip ties and some chemical accelerants. She used the zip ties to seal the main doors of the hall, and then the fire exits, trapping everyone inside. She left a big puddle of chemicals right in front of the door. And as she walked away, she left a trail of accelerant in her wake. She walked outside and then walked around the entire outside of the school using the zip ties to close every single door and fire exit. Just in case anybody was outside of the main hall, they still wouldn't be able to get out of the school. When everything was sealed up tight, she lit a match. She climbed up onto the roof of the principal's car in the parking lot, and she sat and watched the school burn. She clapped her hands. She bounced up and down with childlike delight to the screams of the burning people inside. She was still sitting there on top of this car when emergency services arrived. She didn't try to get away almost as if she didn't think she'd done anything wrong. When the paramedics checked her and they asked her what had happened, she simply said, I was finished playing with those dollies, so I burned them.
drive a Cadillac 100 miles long. Back you can hear my radio on. How and wolf will give a spoonful to you, but in my dreams, spoonful sure won't do. I pull aces, he does too. When I wake up, I don't know what to do. At age 23, Eric Bright was engaged to be married to the love of his life. He was only a few weeks out from the wedding when his fiancée, Melinda James, was involved in a tragic car accident. She died at the scene, and Eric, well, he didn't handle the news very well, to say the least. Eric Bright had always been a little bit unstable. And it's not like he was deranged or sick or psychotic or dangerous at all. He was just a little, you know, delicate. You know, he was a a nervous fella, you could call him. Melinda wore the pants in that relationship, and that was precisely how Eric wanted it. He needed to have someone protecting him, looking out for him, making most of his life decisions for him. This is exactly what Eric needed in his life. And now, in losing her, he himself was lost. Adrift. It was right around this time that he started talking to himself. Whenever it was that he felt the most alone, he would just start talking to Melinda. Much to his surprise, Melinda started to answer him back. And he could he could actually hear her voice, and not just in his head, he could actually hear her as if she was in the room with him. She advised him on what to buy, told him what to wear, explained how to perform all those little mundane daily tasks that she had always handled for him in the past. So, Eric is not an idiot. He saw Melinda's body. He knew that she was dead and gone, and there was no way that she could actually be there with him now. But at the same time, he was so desperately lonely, very scared about everything in life all the time, that having Melinda there with him in any capacity made him feel better. It was like Linus in a security blanket. When he realized that she wasn't actually talking to him, that he was merely answering himself in a facsimile of her gravelly voice, he was far too gone into the illusion to even care anymore. All that mattered to him was that he and Melinda were together again and that they would never be separated. Sharing your brain with a controlling, domineering, dead girlfriend is not exactly the stuff of happily ever afters. It turns out that it creates conflicts. For example, one night, Eric was out for a drive. And along the side of the road, he sees an attractive woman going for a jog. And she stops at the corner, waiting for the light to turn. 
She was very attractive. Eric had been alone physically for quite some time at this point. He stops at the light. He looks over at her standing there. And for a moment, just for a moment, he felt a strong physical attraction for that woman. She caught his eye. She smiled. She waved at him. She was, she was just being friendly, of course. But then Eric pulled over, got out of the car, and beat that woman to death with a tire iron. Melinda, you see, was jealous. When the Eric part of him became attracted to that woman, even for a moment, the Melinda part of him took over and made sure that he could never cheat on her. So it's not like Eric Bright was a criminal mastermind. He didn't plan out his murders. He didn't clean up crime scenes. He didn't even cover his tracks at all. It's because he wasn't planning for these things to happen. He simply couldn't control them. Melinda was still in charge of the, of the relationship, even from the grave. Whenever he was attracted to any woman, she would take over and murder that woman. He was able to murder seven women without getting caught. Pure, blind luck. And on the seventh victim, who was just a teenage girl, a high school girl, softball player selling candy door-to-door as a fundraiser, when Eric finally came back to being Eric and woke up next to her body, her broken, bleeding body, it broke him. He couldn't handle it. He went to the police and he turned himself in and he gave a full confession. Or at least as full of a confession as Melinda would allow him to. He was taken into custody and there he remains to this very day. Eric Bright is still a subject of ongoing psychological research. They call him the Lovers. The Opera House Diner is situated on the verdant, windswept northern coast of Oregon. Founded over 50 years ago by Cordelia and Luther Jorgensen, it has become a mainstay of the local community. The bustling diner was already making a name for itself when the one-voice commune was established and when its members disappeared. As you can imagine, the Jorgensons have many stories to tell. Maybe the strangest of them all happened in 1968 when a scruffy musician and his entourage stopped by for directions and ended up staying for lunch. Luther Jorgensen remembers it well, even today. So this fella comes in. Lots of young people with him. Free love types, a lot of them. I could tell right away he was a musician. His hair, his beard, he, he just came off like a, like a, you know, a rock star. So I ask him, I says, says, so you play music, do you? And he says to me, you ever hear of the Beach Boys? Now, I mean, I may not know much about music, but everybody's heard of the Beach Boys. Well, anyway, he came in looking for directions to, uh, to, uh, you know, the, the, those cult weirdos that lived a few miles outside of town. I mean, this was before they all, you know, went away. So, this fella and all his scruffy friends, they ended up having some lunch. Ordered a grilled cheese sandwich, he did. Seeing as how he was a celebrity of sorts, I don't know. 
I, you know, I, I threw in an order of fried pickles on, on the house. It was my wife's idea. She always did have a mind for that sort of thing. Anyway, this fella went crazy for them pickles. Ordered six more baskets. Made all the friends try them too. He didn't even use the dipping sauce. So anyway, when they were leaving, my wife, she, she stops and she says, Hey there, can I ask you for, to take a picture for, for the wall? We never had no celebrities come through before, so it was, it was kind of a big deal for us. Fellow was real nice about it, too. He, he fetched his guitar from the car and even posed for the picture. So, I mean, that, that was that. And it wasn't until a couple of years later, and old Bill Parker, he was in here, he was sitting right there at the counter having his breakfast like always. Now, I mean, maybe Bill had never noticed the picture before, but he looks up and sees it on the wall, and he says, Hey, Luther! And I says, Yeah, Bill, what is it? He says, Who's that fella in the picture? I said, Oh, that's one of them beach boys. And Bill, he says, No, no, sir, I don't think so. He says, I think that's one of them crazy fellas who cut up that pregnant actress. I says, No, that can't be right. But then we look up a picture of the fella and holy smokes, what do you know? It's Charlie Manson. Well, anyway, we kept the picture up. He was still the only famous person we ever ate here. So there you have it. Before Charles Manson unleashed his own cult on the world, before the Tate-LaBianca murders, Charles Manson ate lunch at a small diner in Oregon and apparently remembered that meal quite fondly. Prison records show that right up until the end, Manson repeatedly petitioned the warden to allow fried pickles in the cafeteria. Ladies and gentlemen, Charles Manson loved fried pickles. never had a chance. To say the kid had a rough upbringing is to redefine what the term rough upbringing actually means. He was born with 
profound birth and genetic defects. His mother died in childbirth so that he wouldn't have to grow up feeling like a freak. His father took him and moved him out to a cabin in the woods where they lived as hermits for the first few years of his life before his father died in an accident, leaving a 10-year-old Ben Burroughs alone on his home in the middle of nowhere. He, he wasn't a smart man. His genetic abnormalities made him large and strong, but also very slow. But he wasn't that slow. He knew how people responded when they saw him. He knew he had to stay in hiding. He was profoundly deformed. Extensive genetic damage. This hulking brood of low intelligence forced to live alone for years. And that's what he did. He, he killed his own food. He stayed in the cabin with his father's corpse all those years, and he grew up in a complete vacuum. But even there, when you're twisted in the flesh and the mind, as Ben was, he never really had a chance to be anything that would be recognizable as a human being. And he might have lived and died out in the middle of nowhere by himself, if not for... The unfortunate timing of a land sale. A nearby plot of land was bought by the National Chapter for the Home for Wayward Boys and Girls for the specific purpose of turning it into a lakeside summer camp. As they built it, Ben watched from across the lake. He stalked them. That first summer, he watched the children. He studied the counselors. They awoke Feelings in him that a hermit boy that had never been around people had never felt before. It's not clear exactly why he attacked the summer camp or when he did it. But one night, under a full moon, he took his hunting knife and a tree branch that he had sharpened down into a spear and he walked into that camp. Fifteen people in that camp were dead before the police got there. At this point, as a grown man, Ben Burroughs was a giant. Seven feet tall, over 325 pounds. He had a cleft palate that was so severe it nearly split his face in half. And his nose was folded, inverted in on itself. Was it any wonder that the boys and girls at this camp thought that a monster, a literal monster, had come to eat them? Thankfully, the police finally arrived, and they fought the monster. But the killing didn't stop. The monster just turned his fury towards the police. He fought them and he killed several before they managed to bring him down with a combination of bullets, tear gas, and tranquilizer darts that they had to use on bears. Now, later, medical science would speculate on what had made Ben so hard to bring down that night. They'd never actually seen a case like his before. Apparently, his endocrine system was out of this world. It was almost superhuman. His body was constantly being flooded with hormones, growth hormones, testosterone, adrenaline. It's like Ben lived in a constant state of flight or fight. He lived with hormones raging through his veins, coursing through him at all times. Those same genetic defects that had wrecked his 
body and his face were also ensuring he could never have a moment of peace. Of course, all of this knowledge came later, much later, because they didn't get a chance to examine Ben Burroughs that night. They had just barely got him into a holding cell when he woke up. He woke up from six gunshot wounds and three tranquilizer darts. He snapped his restraints like they weren't even there. There were five armed police officers with him in that cell, and he killed all of them with his bare hands. But, you know, a precinct filled with cops is a far cry from a defenseless summer camp, right? Well, not that right. It seemed to make no difference to Ben Burroughs. He stormed through that facility on a one-man rampage. He killed 17 law enforcement officers and personnel in the span of eight minutes. It was the single greatest massacre of law enforcement officers in American history. And then he stopped. He got down on one knee in the middle of a holding cell and he became calm. By this point, the SWAT teams had arrived. They circled him. They drew down on him. Ben didn't move. He stayed on one knee, kneeling and looking so so placid. If his deformed face would have been capable of forming a smile, there's no doubt that he would have been smiling. Because he was looking into the face of a little girl, a little blonde girl standing there holding his hand. And she was whispering to him, smiling, giggling. She told the SWAT team that Ben got very upset when people stared at his face and that he would very much like it if they gave him a mask. Her name was Emily Mason. With her help, Ben was quietly and calmly escorted back to a cell, and Emily took the cell next to him. They have been best friends ever since. Emily Mason and Ben Burroughs ended up having a long and fruitful friendship. In time, they eventually crossed paths with the lovers, Eric Bright, as well as, of all people, Obadiah Moncrief. You probably remember from the first episode of this show, The Cannibal Hog Farmer. All of them were so very different, but had one thing in common. Serial killers, mass murderers, they were were all wolves in sheep's clothing. Predators wearing prey masks. They were all very different. They were all, in their own way, engines of murder and destruction. Eventually, they were all a part of, as you know, what was called the Night of the Long Knives. But that's a story for another day. For now, reflect upon how dangerous and unpredictable your fellow human can be. Whether it's a little girl or... uh, giant weird guy living in the woods or a a geeky widower. Anybody could slit your throat when you least expect it. We'll see you next week 
for the Halloween episode of A Scary Home Companion.